0: And welcome to the Squiggly Animation Podcast. I'm Steve Henderson, and I'm joined as ever by Mr. Ben Mitchell. Hello, Ben. Hello, Stephen. Did you have a good summer? Oh, I had an amazing summer. Absolutely wonderful. Uh, turned 30, and everything's gone. Everything's gone downhill.
1: Welcome to adulthood.
0: I caught a cold on my 30th birthday, and I wasn't sure if if that's what happens to your body when you become 30, you just become a wreck. <laughs> or If I just actually had a cold.
1: Well, I don't know. I mean, how long does it take you to take a piss now?
0: Um, Because it's going
1: to start slowing down pretty damn soon. (laughs) It's when you actually have to use your pelvic muscles. That's when you know you're in trouble. Wow. You've passed the point of no return.
0: Wow. You're only a year older than me as well. This is terrible news. (laughs) It's been a
1: long, long year.
0: (laughs) been a long decadent year <laughs> so uh, how's how's the month been animation wise for you ben animation
1: wise it's all been a blur lots of exciting things happening that i'm not allowed to talk about such as the nature of the beast but uh rest assured once it will be revealed it'll be boring and everyone will have forgotten i brought it up to begin with fair enough also nature of the beast it's it's been it's been wonderful but i'm sure our health and our livelihoods and our lifestyles and all that goodness come second to the entertainment that we're obliged to provide for our squiggly audience. So let's barrel ahead, shall we? Into the podcast at full pelt, noses first. Who do we have on this episode of The Squiggly Podcast? Give it to me.
0: We have an interview with Mr. Travis Knight, the president's CEO of Leica Studios, and he's been lead animator on films such as Coraline, Paranorman, and the new film out in cinemas now, The Box Trolls.
1: We also have an interview with Jesse Cleaverly of Wild Seed Studios, who will be discussing their unique M.O. in bringing adult animation to the web and beyond. Ah. And rounding it all out, we have an interview with Yanni Goodman, art director and lead animator on Waltz with Bashir, and the more recent film The Congress, as directed by Ari Folman. Uh, the Congress played at this year's Encounters
0: Festival. We'll be hearing more from him later on in the podcast. Ah, very good. Another plethora of animation talent brought to you by the Squiggly Podcast. We keep bringing it. We certainly do. So
1: first up on the podcast agenda is Jesse Cleverly of Wildseed Studios. Wild Seed are based in Bristol and they're made up of Jesse and Miles Boer. Miles, some of you may remember, appeared in the very first episode of the Squiggly podcast. Uh, Many moons ago now, it was just when the animation tax credits were introduced, the tax credits that Miles himself campaigned rather heavily for. And uh, together with Jesse, they're on the lookout to discover new animation talent with a hope to find some serious sustainable properties that can be developed into TV series and uh, possibly beyond. They're in development of several at the moment, including Tom Grant and Martin Woolley, Ralph Kidson, and Nicholas Bowe. You can find out more about the projects if you visit WildseedStudios.com. Now, what's potentially quite exciting about what Wildseed are doing is that they are offering what is essentially a sort of open call for submissions. So, regardless of background or experience, if you have an idea that has the potential to be developed, then they want to hear from you. They uh, did the rounds earlier in the year at a lot of animation events, discussing their overall sort of MO and business acumen and what it is precisely that they uh, engage with themselves. But for those of you who may not have been able to make those events and are curious about what they do, here is Jesse Cleverly of Wildseed Studios to provide some elucidation.
2: My name is uh, Jess Cleverly, I'm the creative director at Wildseed Studios. Um, we're a UK based. Uh, content and IP incubator uh, which we can explain a bit more later. Um, In terms of my background I um, started off working in theatres and worked for a new writing theatre in London for a director called Stephen Daldry for five years doing all their marketing uh, which I sort of slightly filed under... Interesting, but basically useless. Until I started a YouTube channel, which again we can talk about more. Um, then I went to the BBC and scripted feature films, and um, then I was head of development at a unit at the BBC that was asked to invent the future of storytelling in the digital age, and spent a couple of years making what turned out to be very early, too early uh, pilots for uh, essentially adult drama projects for interactive and for digital. Uh, then I worked for the BBC Children's Department as an executive producer and uh, became finally um, the person in charge of finding and buying in all the international animation projects for the kids department. Um, and I then left the BBC and spent five years show running for people at Ardman and Disney, uh, Method Animation in France uh, before starting Seed Studios. That's great. Um, I guess the uh,
1: the what the viewers are sort of most interested in is. What it is about Wild
2: that differs from sure. the Animation okay. and what the mission statement is. Yeah, okay. So Wild Studios is a bit different, really, I suppose, from a traditional production company. Um, and the reason for that is is that uh, when we set the company up we made an observation about being a creator today particularly an emerging creator which was that in many ways you've never had it so easy as a creator because if you buy a camera and a laptop or a piece of editing software and a laptop uh, you're a production company and uh, if you plug that into YouTube you're a broadcaster so in some ways it's never been so easy but in other ways it's also never been so hard because all the things that existed you know, when I went into TV like mentorship uh, expanding opportunities, the right to fail—god forbid—all um, those things are basically shrinking down. You know, when I joined the BBC, it was twenty-three thousand people; it's now sixteen thousand. Same thing at Channel Four. Same thing at Channel Five. Same—you know—all everywhere you look. So, so as a creator, you can do it for yourself, but the challenge that you've got, I think, is—you know—how do you get out of your bedroom? You know, how do you make money? How do you have a career rather than a hobby? Uh, and secondly, you know, how do you get great? You know, how do you get access to the training and to the mentorship um, that, that helps you grow as a, as a creative talent? So, so we set up Wild Seed, really, to provide those things to emerging creators. So we provide uh, creative mentorship, uh, we provide strategic advice on how to, to, to make the idea that you're working with us into a brand, monetize it, etc., and cash. So we will invest up to £10,000 in the first instance to pilot an idea from a creator. Um, and we plan to make 50, 5-0 of those, 50, uh, those <laughs> I wish, ten grand investments over the next um, three years. And for the, for the 25 ideas that clearly engage the audience uh, most powerfully, we're going to follow our first investment with a further investment of £25,000. And for the five that really look like they might break out and go, we're going to invest 100. So, you know, for our business to work, for our investors to be happy, we need one hit, you know, one proper on the supermarket shelves hit. Um, But along the way, uh, we will have enabled, we believe, 50 people to make... Uh, to make the project that they really want to make. So, so that is rather different from a, from a traditional production company where you'd be more likely to be pitching a script or maybe a storyboard, if it was animation, maybe, but more likely a script and a Bible and a pitch document. With us, um, you know, you're more likely, well, you will be making a pilot with us rather than doing paper development. So. And we also do a very, very different deal with the creators Um, in order to make this way of working possible which I won't go into detail here which is on the website but very crudely speaking if um, a traditional television dealers you'll get paid really well for your time at the beginning in development but if it works you basically see very little of that profit in the back end our model is exactly the reverse of that. So we pay you very little at the beginning, like maybe nothing, ideally nothing, literally nothing. Um, but if it works, uh, we'll pay you a really, really, really handsome share of the profits. Um, and that also makes a big, big difference because it means that we have an essentially entrepreneurial relationship with our creators. You know, we bring our expertise, our passion, and our money, uh, and you bring your idea and your time and together we spend some money to get the most value on screen. Um, so I think that if people want to be in development and be in development and pay their mortgage by being in development then probably a traditional company is a better place to be than we are. Um, if people you know, have a bit of bandwidth, have a project that they love dearly, that they really want to see made their way and that they can probably fit in alongside jobs that are paying better or, you know, as a sort of adjunct to, to stuff, then it seems to be that people find Working With Wild to be really empowering.
1: Mm-hmm. So what sort of backgrounds are you after in terms of the people who come to you for ideas? Is there any parameters?
2: The parameters really are editorial mostly. Um, we look for genre fiction projects. Um, we look for adult animation. Uh, we look for kids 6 to 11 and we look for character comedy. Um, in terms of, I mean, and everything that we have picked up um, and will pick up has to have a brilliant fictional character at its core so we get a sense a lot of sort of big clever ideas um, and then we look and we look and we look and we sort of can't find a, a character that we really believe the audience want to be or be with uh, at the centre of that project um, and if we can't find that, we pass, to be honest because it's our belief that an audience will follow a character that they love um, I mean we learnt, I've learned a lot I've been mentored by a man called Fred Siebert over the years and you know that is an approach that I very much learned by working with his development team. so thank you Fred um, but, but yes, it really helps us in that first instance because you can imagine we're getting sent everything you know in every form you can imagine. In terms of the people submitting to us, I mean one of the things that we absolutely believe in is that It is important for us to unlock a different layer of talent. Uh, I mean, in in animation, for example, I think there is a massive amount of talent locked up storyboarding in studios, but most of that talent feels a very, very long way from being able to pitch a show or even talk to the people you might... You know, it just... You know, it feels miles away. And the problem, of course, is if you're storyboarding for years and years and years in industrial, essentially industrial processes, you know, often it's very hard, I think, at the end of that to feel really fresh and excited about your own ideas. So, So we really try and access talent at any stage. Um, we have we are working with people who are well known from Telly and have agents and representation, and we're working with people like Nick Bow to make, you know, Ball Street as it's currently called, or Peter's Place, or anyway, it will be called one of these things. Um, and Nick, you know, Nick doesn't even really describe himself as an animator, and you know, thinks he can't draw, and you know, was doing a radiography degree, you know, so. But he's really funny and really talented. So, so I think that you know, for us, it's about the idea. Uh, it's about the central character and it's about whether or not we believe that the person we're, we're talking to about the idea has the will to to you know really you know enter into a really energized entrepreneurial relationship with us um, to really to get it done you know and we ask a lot you know i mean the money goes a long way with one of our investments we've made well, actually in the end we put two investments together so twenty thousand pounds but we made an eighty minute feature film live action feature film you know we, uh, the Spin Kick Brothers are delivering us you know, three six-minute animatics for one investment. So, so really, uh, the investment is, is, you know, goes a very long way. And, and actually, I think if you ask most of the people who've worked with us, you know, the value of working with us, I mean, yes, the money is great. Uh, but really, I think people mostly find the value resides in the kind of contact with myself and the team around the creative development of a project, and contact with Miles Buller, my business partner, around, you know, okay, how do we turn this into a brand? How do we make money from it? How should we position it? Who should we take it to? And, you know, and, and actually, so I think really a lot of the value is, is in the contact with us and the, and the time we spend with our creative projects.
1: So with that in mind, there are a few projects that are off the ground
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, can you just give a sort of overview of
2: each of the ones that about- are... Sure. Um, so we've taken about 16 things into pilot now. Uh, I mean, we always make something with the investment. We would never spend the money on paper development, you know. So, so in animation, we've picked up... Um, where to begin I mean we've picked up a really great show that's just delivering from Joel Vetch who uh, runs a website called rathergood.com had a thing on Sky the Christmas before last called Uncle Wormsley Um, and Joel and his team are animating a full episode of that 11 minute episode Um, we've picked up a fantastic thing from Nick Bowe uh, called Peter's Place, or it was called Bull Street, but I think we're going to call it Peter's Place, which will be uh, three times four minutes, fully animated, and Nick's um, inimitable style. Um, we've picked up three animatics uh, from um, a creative partnership called the Spin Kick Brothers, Tom, Gran and Martin Woolley. Uh, one is about three bikers sharing a flat. One is about a sort of caddish Anglo-Indian adventurer set in a very surreal version of the Raj. And one is a sort of Kill Bill-esque revenge story set in a very old version of America. Um, We've also picked up um, three uh, short animations from a comic artist called Ralph Kidson. One's about God and Jesus sharing a flat. One is about very sweary animals living on the Serengeti. And one is a rather tragic, one voiced by Ralph, in fact, about a job-hunting squirrel. Nice. But we believe, you know, I mean, we really believe that there is a huge opportunity in the UK for adult animation. You know, we definitely have the talent. um, And we definitely now have the production environment, thanks to the tax break, where we can do it competitively. I think that the problem is that in the UK up until now, it's either been adult comedy companies trying to make adult animation um, and not quite understanding that there's a sort of, it's, it's more than the fact that it's drawn that makes the difference. Um, and also, I think that, or it's been animation companies that are very used to making kids' programming and, you know, at, at some level are not sort of connected into or understanding the sort of adult comedy environment. Um, so, we hope that because we've both made a lot of adult comedy and adult programming as well as a lot of animation, that we can bring the kind of focus to it that it needs. So, so we feel really—I mean you know—in terms of what we're seeing already, well, that's definitely. I think it's definitely available.
1: Mm-hmm. I think there's also perhaps one of the main issues with getting British animated sitcoms to sort of stick yeah. with the public consciousness is that generally a sitcom isn't really given many half hours per season no. in England, no. and a lot of the successful ones in the states do. Yeah. You know, Twenty plus episode. Yeah, find that yeah, yeah. And the way that you have it kind of set up with the audience feedback, perhaps with the projects as you're developing them, do you think this will help, like, give things a bit more, I don't know, traction? Mm.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think in terms of you know what what the problem has been up until now, and and why British adult animation, you know, and whether or not you define that as animated sitcom or it's sort of slightly more widely. You know, I think he's open for, for discussion. But I think that, you know, why haven't we seen one of these things before and what's the opportunity now? I mean, I think that, you know, obviously in America you have, you know, the ability to commission multi-episodes and... You know, and and a, and a much bigger marketplace, and and what part of the problem I think in the UK has been, you know, as you said, that the orders are very short, and then uh, broadcasters are nervous, and it feels expensive and slow, and uh, all these things. So, so I think that um, you know, moving forward, there's you know, there's a few things really. One, I think that um, you know, the emerging platforms, the emerging digital landscape allows niche what would be niche products to reach very sizable global audiences so the problem for a UK broadcaster is obviously they have to think okay can we get an audience to get a general entertainment audience to come to this piece of of this piece of content which happens to be adult animation and we're really nervous as channel four or whoever else you know about our ability to do that is that a big enough audience or not So, obviously, one of the joys of digital media is that, you know, we're replacing that model of terrestrial or broadcast television, which has to create a mass audience out of a local marketplace. And I think we're replacing that with digital media that can go, as Squiggly does, right, to the global niche audience for a particular source of programming, in this case, adult animation. So, if you look at Mondo Media, you look at Fred's Cartoon Hangover, you know, there are now a number of of outlets in digital that are absolutely delivering you know to that to that um, group so I think that that in that sense you know there is a new opportunity in terms of our ability as a UK based studio to reach a big enough audience globally to make sense of for example an ad funded model or you know possibly increasingly in the future some kind of pay per view sort of model so I think you know so I think that that will definitely help my experience for example when I was buying animation for the BBC was that you know we would buy You know Really beautifully produced 3D CG shows You know Which cost I don't know £10,000 a minute To produce If you were lucky Right And we would also buy Scrappy little flash shows From little studios In the middle of nowhere You know And I would say In terms of the ones that hit And the ones that missed Um you know, it was often the little scrappy flash shows that hit and the really beautifully produced, you know, 3D CG shows that missed. And, you know, my, my feeling about why that is is that it was something about the little scrappy flash shows that had survived in terms of the creator's original vision and a sort of purity of approach, which is very hard to preserve in something as big and complex and expensive, crucially, as 3D, for example. So I think that part of the problem in the UK has been that animation has been a craft practice as opposed to a balls-out entertainment genre. And as a result, I think that the UK animation community, not universally and you know, possibly less than before has been very caught up on the craft and the beauty of animation and as a result we've had a very vibrant sort of film festival friendly animation culture mm-hmm. but we haven't necessarily had that kind of entertain or die right. you know sort of it doesn't matter if it's a bit scrappy around the edges because the vibe of it is so good and yeah. so engaging and so irrepressible you know and if you look at Tom and Martin the Spin Kick Brothers animatics you know on our channel You know, they're really rough. I mean, they are hand-drawn, scrappy animatics with great voice talent, crucially. But actually, you sort of forget their animatics because the joy of it, the sheer sort of verve of it and the sort of ridiculousness of it is so infectious that I think that pretty quickly you stop really noticing. (laughs) So I think that, you know, for the UK to make, um, you know, the British South Park, I mean, you know, the number of times I've been pitched that, as you can imagine, right, all the British Simpsons, I mean, easy to say or horribly hard to do, you know, is to do what they did in the first episode of South Park. I mean, that first, those first episodes of South Park, that was $120,000 a half hour. You know, so that's that, and that was you know. So you know now, I mean, that would be I don't know. Let's say that's one hundred and twenty thousand pounds a half hour, right? So you know, that is about a thousand. You know, that's not very much money. My maths is not good enough to work out the per minute price, but but you know, very little money, right? Really, in the grand scheme of things, and quickly done and. You know, when we all first saw South Park, that all felt really radical and exciting. My God, they did it with cutout animation. <gasps> you know, and now it's, we don't even know. I mean, now, of course, it's more complicated and they spend loads more money on it. But, you know, our view is that, you know, that, you know, we, we absolutely do not need to be getting it perfect visually. It's much more important to do it in such a way as to really allow you to preserve the spirit of the thing.
1: So for those out there who are listening, watching this interview, who uh, are thinking based on this that they want to submit something, what... What advice
2: would you give them before they get started? Uh, Well, my advice is really to submit the idea, you know. I mean, we, we respond to everybody in person. Everyone gets a personal response. It takes about, I'm afraid, we're trying to get it quick. It takes about six weeks. But, you know, the way it works is basically if we read the idea and we think it's got potential, we will have a call or a meeting if it's easy and just figure out, you know, what it is that the person really wants to do. We don't give... We don't give our creators any compulsory notes at all, so it's very important to us. And and you know we don't do months of paper development. You know the first thing that formally happens is you know we sign the deal, we give you you know we we agree the budget and we go. So what that means is that we we need to make sure that you know because we don't give compulsory notes, i.e. we really do seek to enable the creator to do what they want to do. It's really important to make to make sure going in that we're basically seeing it the same way. I mean of course inevitably as a project develops and changes and all the rest of it. So so the way it would go is send us the idea. We have a website where you, there is a really simple form that you need to fill in just outlining the basics of the idea. It's really important to us so we can track all the ideas and make sure everyone's getting dealt with properly. If we like the idea, we'll have a meeting or a call. If that feels right to both sides, because of course it might be that the creator thinks, okay, no, that's not what I thought it was, but... assuming and up until now everyone has felt that it was a good good conversation we will then normally spend probably i don't know a couple of months probably doing uh some informal development which means that you know if at any point during that development the creator thinks i'm really not enjoying this i'm gone which hasn't happened yet or we think actually this isn't going how we thought it would we're gone which also hasn't happened yet but good um, and then at the end of that, if we're all happy and good and everyone's like, yep, we we'll see it the same way, we can really we really we are all agreed on what it is we're going to try and make first, uh, then we will do the deal. And um, we offer basically one deal to all our creators, uh, which is, uh, again, pretty unconventional. You know, it's tough in some ways, um, and really great in other ways. I think it would be fair to say. Um, We don't really, really negotiate it, just because. Every production company I knows overhead is largely based on legal fees, which is about constantly micro micro renegotiation of their contract so what what we do is if someone has an agent, then we 'll talk to them and have a whole conversation if someone doesn 't have an agent, which is true for a lot of the people we work with, uh, we will pay for them to spend a couple of hours with an independent media lawyer going through the deal um, because it 's very important to us that we don 't you know. Do what the music industry is said to have done, which is get you know because someone offers you a deal, right? You're like, Great, let's do it. Oh my god, I got a deal, and then you think, oh god, I signed it, and now I'm in this horrible deal. So it's really important to us that people understand the deal, um, and uh, and then you know we sign and we go, and you uh, know again we have no one's ever not signed the deal, having had it explained to them. But I think everyone feels very you know empowered by the fact that they feel genuinely across it, you know. Um, so, yeah, if you're, thinking about, if you're thinking about submitting an idea, submit away, you know, we, uh, we're really, you know, we want to see them and, um, you know, we, we love them. And, and often, you know, we'll have a meeting with someone and it won't be the right project, but it'll lead to a really great conversation and then that'll set them thinking. And then, you know, so it's always, it's always worth it, I think.
3: Excellent. Great.
2: Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for your time.
1: So Leica like are back with a new film following on from the uh, enormously successful films Coraline and Paranorman, The Box Trolls. Steve, what do you make
0: of it? I thought it was excellent, yes. I I, I always point out as well when you said Leica like are back, this is the thing with these stop motion companies is it takes years for these little treats to turn up at the cinemas. I think it's number one in the UK at the moment uh, and deservedly so. It's such a Wonderful film, really well-crafted, and it is a step up uh, from Paranorman. There's a, a lot of spectacle to it, an awful lot of uh, uh, humour, and and just the animation's taken a, a, a step up. The whole thing is a really well-done piece of work. Indeed, indeed. So, yes,
1: I, I have yet to actually see it myself. Uh, one of these days, I'm sure I will. It's kind of uh, festival madness and uh, work craziness. And all that jazz, of course, are squiggly contingent out there between a a handful of them. have managed to catch some of the old uh, press screenings and junkets and whatnot. So we have some lovely coverage, review and uh, interviews with some of the uh, folks involved. We have an interview coming up with the CEO and president of Leica Studios, Travis Knight. Mm. I'm not quite sure why I'm speaking with such an... Uh, exaggerated
0: affectation this time around, I'll try and cut it out. It's exciting stuff, Ben, it, and made even even more so uh, by, uh, by your, your announcing voice.
1: It's because we, we don't do this that regularly, so whenever there's a microphone in front of me, I'm like, so, what's next? All right, enough, Ben. <laughs>
0: yeah. Did you see that uh, Rotten Tomatoes, or Tomatoes, just to translate for Americans... Gave it 20% when it first came out. I mean, thankfully, that's kind of evened out to a a more respectable uh, 69% at the time of recording. But to see that instantly it got 20% put quite a few people off. I noticed a few people mentioned it on Facebook. Did you notice this, Ben?
1: Uh, Yes, I think I mentioned it on Facebook and we had a whole exchange about it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Did I just break the fourth wall? You, you you broke the fourth, fifth, and sixth wall.
1: What do you think that's about? Do you think it's that they just kind of send the general film reviewers who don't really give a crap about animation out first, or do people who have less positive things to say want to get their opinion out there quicker? I think
0: that's basically it. Yeah, and it's uh, it's usually the the places that don't quite appreciate animation as we do, Ben, or as you know the more sort of creative angled sites do. So like your Hollywood Reporters, Variety, people like that. And i think it's it 's safe to say that that Hollywood has never really understood this type of film they 've never really understood mm. stop motion animation and, and and what what goes into it and they 're kind of viewing it without a respect for the medium if that makes much sense because if this f- film is anything it 's a tremendous achievement you know it 's also a wonderful film with you know fantastic characters, fantastic adaptation of a story it's you know it 's a nice piece of work. Uh, and as I said previously, it's a great step up from Paranorman, a great step up from Coraline, even. But these kind of Hollywood papers, these Hollywood magazines, just watch it, and you know it's it's not got a massive massive names attached to it. It's not got the spectacle that you kind of expect from from Pixar films, and unfamiliar territories for them to review. I believe. well, well that's what I believe.
1: I think also, in a way, it's sort of, it, perhaps in the promotion of the film, it didn't seem that Laika, because there were actually some quite big names attached to it, that I think if Leica wanted to, they could use to sort of, like, Ben Kingsley's pretty huge. Mm-hmm. Everyone likes Simon Pegg and Nick Frost, you know, and I think that uh, ultimately, if you want to, you can put a big name on a, on a poster, and, ooh, Eddie Murphy, again, doing <laughs> his Eddie Murphy impersonation. Uh, Steve Carell. Da, 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 et, cetera, et cetera, But, you know, a lot of the, the films that tend to be a little bit kind of a cut above, they will have people who are very well known and uh, whether or not it's an agreement between the actors or that uh, they can't be used for the marketing or maybe they just want the film's success to kind of be about the film itself rather than, you know, a big name that's attached. It's hard to sort of say, but I do know that there have been quite a lot of animated films that didn't really rely on the big name actor when they perhaps could have. You know, maybe if the Pirates had made more of a thing of Hugh Grant being the guy, you know, it might have gotten a couple of extra bums on seats, but it wouldn't have made that much of a difference, really, you know? Yeah. You know, And I think Paranorman and uh, uh, also had some pretty big names in terms of the voice roster as well, right?
0: Yeah, but as you say, they didn't really kind of play up on it. Hmm. You know, like, like say, um, Simon Pegg and Nick Frost are, are in this film. Completely separate roles. I don't think the two characters actually interact. It's not kind of like a a Frost and Peg film in that kind of respect. No. And the other thing about about Lyca is I don't think they're bound by any kind of uh, strategic marketing policy, which films like you know the Pixar films, the Disney films, the Sony films adhere to. You know so they don't feel the need to. That I think they I think they're comfortable and well off. they like they've got all this Nike money coming in. And they can just make films and then promote them as they wish. Mm -hmm. That's why you get an angle on the craft through through their trailers. And there's a beautiful part at the end of the film which everyone should wait for and which Laura Beth uh, alluded to in her review, which you can view on the website on squiggly.com. This wonderful kind of tip of the hat to animation and animators and the process and stuff, which is... Which is great, which is, I think, which is what Laika are all about. They're not about the the Hollywood fanfare. They're about, you know, the process of filmmaking.
1: Yeah. Throw in a little splash of the old metaphysical.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Or
1: meta-theatrical. One of the metas.
0: Yeah. I'm not sure.
1: (laughs) Something that sounds insightful.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thankfully, the the tidal wave of, of poor reviews, which I don't agree with at all, from the likes of The Hollywood Reporter, who called it stubbornly unappealing, (laughs) <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah that's a stubbornly unappealing review if you ask me and, and then they go uh screen international it all it all feels rather simple and lacking in the the real cleverness audiences come to expect from such fair i can only assume that uh mark adams from screen international was sat with his back to the screen <laughs> when he wrote this review it's it, it's baffling but like i say luckily uh the film's Genuine appeal and genuine technical brilliance stood out to uh, the majority of reviewers, and uh, it's reflected in its its Rotten Tomatoes review, which is now at sixty nine percent. Not that Rotten Tomatoes is at all the you know the thing that people should look for, and people shouldn't really look to reviewers. I mean, it's great to to know what's in a film. It's great to to find out a little bit about a film to get a flavour to what you what you're going to see. But you should always leave it to yourself to judge, I believe.
1: I think of the sort of websites, Rotten Tomatoes is probably the best one to go to in the sense that it is aggregated and it is a more rounded take on various people's opinions and the way it sort of averages out is going to be more fair. You know? mm. So if you had just seen a bad review in like a, a Hollywood trade paper or something and you thought, oh, okay, that's film's not worth my time, but then you went on to Rotten Tomatoes and saw that actually a lot of other people have quite positive things to say about it. It does present a more rounded overall take on how the public are responding to a film. Mm-hmm. Lots of uh, disparate film critics and their opposing viewpoints. You know, from the sounds of it, you, you yourself take issue with some of the uh, the things that are being said. I mean, I think it can only be solved in one way. Uh, dance off. I, I'm up for that. Excellent. Well, let's uh, let's get in touch with Variety and Screen Daily and see if we can get this off the ground. Yeah. I'm an innovator. <laughs> so you would say uh you're on the 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 edge of the spectrum that thinks it's a good film that you thinks it's a good direction for Leica and all that.
0: Certainly, yeah. Uh and I would say when you've seen it you you'll like it as well. It's got a it's got a really nice kind of uh macabre, Roldale kind of flavour to the to the whole thing. I've used that you know, Roldale Dahl- uh, comparison before I believe on this podcast, but the there's a certain i don't know there's a certain thing you can't really sum up.
1: I think the roll doll comparison works, but yes you're there is a limit to how many times you can you can it's like changing regions on a computer dvd player <laughs> so you've done it twice, so I think you have three more roll dolls left in you,
0: good good, good, good,
1: if roll doll set the bar for macabre storytelling that's appealing to family audiences i think he's always going to be a, a good point of reference uh, and i think that perhaps when someone looks at a film like this and and refers to it as stubbornly unappealing i mean i what comes into my head are like visuals from the epk footage stuff like the the kid trying to to assimilate into high society and like he's puking into his plate and eating it again properly to kind of endear himself like i love that kind of stuff because it's so unnecessarily grim, but I wouldn't say that's stubbornly unappealing. Maybe that's not what he meant, but, like, that would be my sort of first guess. But I think a lot of people would kind of relish that kind of, you know, joyfully childish, you know, like the, the twits or, uh... Uh... Other ro- <laughs> other books of that nature. <laughs> you know, I, I'm During a roll, doll blank. <laughs> I can only think of the the ones where pleasant things happen. That one with the old man swapping the turtles on the balcony. What a what a sweet story. <laughs> Nothing grim in that. Did the turtle die? Or Was that super fudge? I'm just babbling. <laughs> what are we What are we talking about? Box trolls.
0: Box trolls. Yes.
1: Interview. Something happened. The
0: wh- I'm drowning. The <laughs> 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 I think a Roldial comparison and the, the kind of what Laika have taken on to on their own isn't is that they don't treat their audience like idiots they're, they're not they don't try and second guess their audience they are prepared to create films which are a little grim they are a little uh, they find humour in in the macabre and they do what they want. And it proves to work, you know, and that's I think that's the kind of like a legacy. that, what three films in now? They're all about um well they all seem to be about outsiders as well, which is an interesting slant. Which could be seen as a a, a kind of like a signature in these kind of things. Hmm. Uh, but all done in an incredibly incredibly different ways. You know, you've got the magic of Coraline, uh, you've got the kind of well, it's magic in, in Paranorman as well, but kind of a, a more kind of hometown, you know, the town's against you kind of feel. Uh, and then the box trolls, more kind of fantasy element to it. It's, yeah, three fantastic ways of, of telling a kind of similar story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but all all the stories, all the screenplays are completely different. But there's that same feel that, uh, that the, other, the, the other big uh, animation powerhouses don't overly tend to go for. And when they do go for it, I'm not saying they don't go for it, but when they do go for it, they don't really... Play on it as much, perhaps out of fear, you know, because they don't know how to do it. Like, I know exactly how to do it, and they know exactly how to present it with just gorgeous animation. Mm-hmm. I think there's been a step up as well in the obviously in the crafting of these films. You know, like are, are absolutely spectacular uh, when it comes to using the rapid prototyping and, and things like that. And it's, in fact, this uh, this film there's more detail in the characters' faces, little veins and different colours and you know tweaks, which sometimes are more noticeable because of the animation. Uh, obviously, watching this as an animator, you know, you can appreciate that. You can see, you can see it ha- all happening in front of you. I don't think it's something that a regular audience will be sort of taken out of the seat by. But it was, it's interesting. You can indulge in the craft while watching it, as well as, you know, enjoying the thing as well. Mm. It's
1: good to see that they're maintaining a stride. There was a very fascinating article, uh, I think, back in. June or May, or it was a few months ago, and it was a quite in-depth story of how um, the company essentially came to be. There were a lot of sort of gaps in the public knowledge of what happened from it being Will Vinton's studio to Leica, because they are pretty much irreconcilable, but there was this kind of handover, and it would take forever to kind of recap it. But uh, have a little look. If you go to priceonomics.com, this article is called How the Father of Claymation Lost His Company. Uh, it's rather impartial. It doesn't portray Liker as villains or, or Will Vinton as stubborn. Or It's just kind of a, a systematic detailing of the history of how one studio becomes another studio. Will Vinton at the moment, I don't think, nearly as active as he once was. And I think that that's sort of indicative of mainly the changing times whereas what Leica do I think is a little more contemporary of course Will Vinton is someone I have tremendous fondness for he did a lot of really really uh high profile animation I guess in like the 80s you know stuff like you know the adventures of Mark Twain and Speed Demon and the California Raisins but uh, that's a style that when you think of those films very much sort of married very detailed very kind of of its time and I think that while there's certainly a level of detail and sophistication and, you know, what Leica are doing now, it is a very different beast. It's one that's more sort of uh, uh, perhaps with the times. It also has some nice sort of history of uh, Mr. Travis Knight, which is sort of interesting. One, I think, viewpoint of Travis Knight's sort of involvement in Leica essentially being part of a, uh, 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 the studio being bought out, that it was sort of nepotistic, and then he actually ended up becoming one of the hardest working people there. That's sort of the best kind of nepotism, in a way, where you get a gig circumstantially and then you work your balls off, because the general consensus, no matter which side you sort of look at, is that Travis Knight was a brilliant animator. Oh, yeah. And we have an interview with him, talking Leica and box trolls and all that good stuff are coming up.
0: It's easy to sort of point at um, Travis Knight and say, oh, it's, you know, it's his dad with uh, who owns Nike, who's got all this money and he's just giving him it, but... There's no dispute in his talent. And it is wonderful that this guy's found this creative outlet and he's presenting us with such such awesome work. And, you know, like I say, the films are supported by a, a, a healthy financial support structure which which kind of help, allows them to avoid the, the kind of Hollywood system. Mm-hmm. You know, almost giving them an indie quality to, their, uh, to the work. Certainly. Which, you know, you can't have enough indie films.
1: So with that in mind, let's hear from... Travis Knight himself, president and CEO of Leica Studios.
0: Leica is
3: known for advancing stop motion. How has box trolls pushed the boundaries further than your films previous at Coraline and Paranormal?
4: Every film that we've done starting with Coraline, the idea has been how can we take this incredible age-old craft that's been around for over a hundred years? It was one of the first visual effects ever invented and and in a lot of ways, it's no different from when Georges Méliès was sending rockets to the moon. How can we take this beautiful art and craft and bring it into a new era so we can do things that we can move past beyond its limitations? And so we did that, starting on Coraline, we did that by implementing and inventing new kinds of technologies that we could merge with the craft. And so we used things like rapid prototyping to print out these faces. We use laser cutting and digital stereoscopic photography, all these different ingredients that you typically wouldn't find in a stop-motion film and applied that prism to that film. And then moving on to Paranorman, we started to, to improve and, and, and evolve the technique even further. And so with, with Box rolls, you can see a, a massive evolution in the ability to make these films in a different kind of and more sophisticated way. We have incredible cinematography in the film that was rooted in, in evolution of you know, some of the computer programs that we brought to actually manipulating the camera characters' faces are completely different. We brought an impressionistic painting style into their face, the way they move, what advance was in our animation team. Every single thing you can see an evolution from where we started on Coraline to now. To, you know, it's, this film represents you know, a, a kind of sophistication and sensibility we couldn't even imagine we were making that film.
3: So with all the advances in the stop motion, do you feel that you, know, you could lose the organic stop motion-esque feel and charm?
4: I think that there is something that is inherently magical about stop motion that you have real objects on a real set bathed in real light, shot with real cameras that have been brought to life by the hands of the animator, by an artist. I think because of that, you get something out of the other end that has a different kind of feeling than if it were done in a different kind of way. Um, you know, I think that when you talk about, you know, stop, the way we envision stop motion, it's about having stop motion live up to its potential, to not just settle for what stop motion can do that it has been it's been doing for the last 100 years. That's how can we take this medium and push it to a new place. It can be as inventive. It can be as beautiful. It can be as fluid. It can be as exciting as something you can see in CG. It's just different. It looks, it looks and feels different. So by, I think by merging all those things into this big... Technological and, and, and process gumbo. So you have, all, you have 2D animation, stop motion and CG and technology and craft, all these different things that we use at our disposal. I think you get something out of the other end that is really unique and really beautiful. And so I'm not worried about it looking like CG or looking like anything else because it looks like none of those things. It's its, it's, its own unique thing.
3: So you're not, you're not too worried about bidding the whole film as stop motion It's more... It's just a film.
4: You know, it, it's, it a, it's, a, it's a film, and for motion. people who are interested in how it was made, you know, we can give them all kinds of information on how it was made. At the core of it, it is a stop-motion film. At the core of it, it is puppets on set that have been brought to life by the animator. But then on the edges, on the fringes of the film, and, 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 it can, and also baked into the filmmaking, is all kinds of technological innovations to bring it to life.
3: So you've hinted there, and you've hinted before, about doing a hand-drawn film. Are you any closer to that? Is that... Is that <laughs>
4: I suppose I have kind of a fascination for for resuscitating more abundant art forms uh, to take, you know, like stop what well, we done with stop motion where we, we found new ways to bring it to life in, in this modern era. I, you know, there, There's been no form of animation historically that has been as beautiful and as expressive as 2D animation. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's shocking to me that it isn't used more often in this modern era. I think there's no reason why it can't be. That there's no reason why you can't take that extraordinary art form and blend it with technology to give audiences something new that they haven't experienced before. In this modern age, I think sometimes something that's old is, is kind of the most exciting and the most new. It's something I would love to do in the fullness of time, but I don't have any... Any announcements as of yet?
3: Okay, (laughs) so you're looking at more of a hybrid film next, or?
4: I mean, I think everything that we do is something of a hybrid film in the sense that it, it draws different techniques from all different forms of filmmaking. I mean, our toolbox is massive. We really do draw from things that predate cinema all the way up through the most modern, cutting-edge uh, you know, technologies. And so, you know, in that sense, it's a hybrid film. I think, that, you know, depending on what the needs of the film and the needs of the story are, those ingredients can kind of vary up and down. But at the core of it, it's a stop-motion film that is then kind of aided by these other kinds of processes.
3: Going back to like your early, early, early career, do you still get that kind of kick that you got when you first picked up your first bit of clay and you thought, okay, I can make something? Happen"? Do you still get that even?
4: I even as a kid, as a fan of stop motion, things like Ray Harryhausen, you know, The Seventh void of Sinbad or Jason and the Argonauts, seeing those things magically brought to life, I had a real thrill just watching them. And then, you know, as a kid trying to figure it out on my own, bringing that stuff to life. And even as crude as it was, to seeing that you could you brought something to life, even in a, even in a very simplistic way, there there you did have that sense of accomplishment and magic and wonder that you were with your hands you were able to bring something to life. To this day, I, I'm still excited by it. I think there is something that is just so wonderful and charming about being able to take a physical object and somehow make it bring to you know bring it to life with your hands to make it feel like a living, breathing, thinking thing. It really is to me. It's the closest thing that we have to magic.
3: In that progression from your early like, as a kid doing it, at what point did you get into the industry and did you start thinking, OK, I can actually do something, here. I can actually make a film, I can actually, you know, go for it full-time? and
4: I think any any kid thinking that they have a viable career path as a stop motion animator is probably a little bit nuts. But it somehow managed I managed to find my way into this incredible industry and to and to, you know use these hands and this mind to do something interesting in this medium. I love it. I've been doing it professionally for nearly twenty years. Uh, I've worked in all different forms of, of, of animation from hand drawn to two D to stop motion to CG. I've done them all. Uh, I've worked in TV. I've worked in commercials and I've worked in film and. And the thing I love about what we're doing in film is that we can, can really tell these incredible stories and take this incredible art form that's 100 years old and still find new ways to, to reinvent it. That it still has so much untapped potential for, you know, as old as it is, we can still take it to new places. And I think that's extraordinarily exciting.
3: Thank you very much. Oh, okay.
1: <laughs> so that was Tom Sanders, one of our own squiggly box trolls out there interviewing Mr. Travis Knight. From Leica Studios. The Box Trolls is in UK cinemas now. If you have not seen it, check it out. I'm looking forward to doing as much myself. You can also see some of that interview, as well as an interview with uh, Isaac Hempstead-Wright, who plays Eggs, I believe the main character of the film, Mm -hmm. the boy raised by Box Trolls. It's quite sweet, young Isaac. Uh, He's showing us how the the puppets work. (laughs) He's going to be it's not a toy, son. Put it down. <laughs> Put its
0: face back on. Do you realise how many thousands of pounds that costs?
1: Bless him. He seemed like a nice fella.
0: They both do. Everyone's nice.
1: Yeah. Everything is awesome. The Lego movie told me so.
0: <laughs> so I think there's something that's caught my eye this month. has been this... Uh, I don't know if you've seen this, Ben. This, this hullabaloo, this steampunk animated film... Uh, created by uh, by veteran Disney animator uh, James Lopez uh, and a whole host of other kind of uh, Disney and DreamWorks and, and, and everything else, uh, uh, animators. So all these sort of big names uh, with a with a kind of history in, in 2D animation. Uh, they're getting together to uh, help Mr. Lopez create a film. The film's called Hullabaloo. Uh, it's on Indiegogo.
1: Well, it's, it's also, it's already done, isn't it?
0: What's this? Uh, they, well, it's actually passed, yeah, So, uh, and it is storming ahead. It's 361% funded. So, you know, congratulations to James and the team. I mean, what they're trying to go for is admirable. It actually looks like a, a wonderful uh, set of films. I mean, originally it was going to be one short film, and now there's going to be three short films uh, with an orchestra and more, you know, as, as, as people keep throwing the money at this, this uh, project... Uh, more films are going to be created as a result. You know, more people are going to be employed. There's going to be more 2D animation, which is fantastic, especially because of the the kind of story here uh, seems rather unique. What's kind of wound me up a little bit about this film, uh, its promotion, is that it's been it's been put across by some uh, news sources as the film that will save 2D animation, which, yeah, that kind of winds me up. does <laughs> it grind your gears? It grinds my f***ing gears. (laughs) Ah. Yes. There should be a new segment. Yeah.
1: (laughs) What's pissing on Steve's chips today?
0: I don't get wound up that often. I mean... Oh, no,
1: I have hours of outtakes of you with pissed on chips. You're a cauldron of perpetual rage, Stephen.
0: (laughs) Man, we could spend a whole podcast with me ranting and raving about the things that are wrong... With Avatar. That it was made? No, that's just a start.
1: (laughs) Tune into our next podcast where we uh, interview James Cameron.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You've got a lot to answer for.
1: That, by the way, is my one and only Breaking Bad reference. I had to get one in.
0: Yeah, I'm in the camp of people that haven't ever watched Breaking Bad and just looked at Facebook yesterday and went, Shut up! Just like, sh- shut up, because these people that are talking about Breaking Bad on Facebook, yeah? In a month's time, or in a month and a half's time, when I'm talking about Doctor Who, they'll be going, oh, you nerd, oh. There. Well, that's because Doctor Who's nerdy. Shut up.
1: But Breaking Bad is, is awesome. Why? <laughs> well, because it's not about a, a, a mystical doctor fighting aliens in a phone box, mainly.
0: A producer. Uh, with uh, with quite quite the credit list, uh, starting off uh with uh some f hole is he's beep, beeping their own outside. That's not his first film, just some quick, f- He's <laughs> beeping their own out. Get out of your f- <laughs> car, go up and knock on the door. It really does my head in, sorry. I don't know. That's for the. That's, some, well, that's one for the cutting room floor. Like, right, really right, Pisses me off. People stand outside somebody's house and go boop, boop, boop on the arm. Let like the cat get out of the f-ing car. Walk like four yards. Knock on the door like a f-ing normal person. And they'll, what they'll do is they'll beep the horn, yeah. And then three, four seconds later, they'll beep the horn again. Three, four seconds. Give them a chance to put the f-ing shoes on. He said you wouldn't tell anyone about that, Ben. Yeah, you know,
1: we, we should call it What's All the Hullabaloo. <laughs> see? Because in honour of the first...
0: No. I see what you did no, there.
1: As, as I'm sure everyone has picked up on, you and I are both radiant founts of sunshine and merriment and uh, uh, perpetual goodwill. It is quite a rare thing for either of us to have a bee in our respective bonnets. That being said, we are human after all. Oh, yeah. So, yes, bringing 2D animation back or saving 2D animation, this is a, a sore point.
0: Yeah, yeah, it, it's a little bit... The, the, the sore point is that uh, this is a, a series of short films that are going to be made. And to say that that's saving 2D animation is kind of disrespectful to the rest of 2D animation. The online media are presenting this as if there's no other 2D animated films. As if Bill Plimpton, Joanna Quinn, other people that sit down with a pen and paper and create work don't exist. And that really, really annoys me. It's, it, I mean, congratulations to the Hullabaloo team. It's obviously worked. <laughs> you, re- you wanted to raise £80,000 and you, you know, you've raised well over a quarter of a million uh, dollars. rather. I think the the situation here is that people don't really understand the difference between animation. They see it as this just one big blob, you know. It's but whereas there's 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 different topics. There's what well, this this is a short film. I mean, the guys used to work on features, and you know features are no, are no more. Disney features are no more. You need to look to Europe. You need to look to Japan, and you'll see that there's absolutely hundreds every year of uh, 2D animated features released. Mm-hmm. It's a lack of information which which I've kind of winds me up the most here.
1: Well, I think also, as far as the general public are concerned, very few of them look like Disney films. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's a kind of general public filter on things that aren't absolutely familiar. Yes. But don't use a certain convention of character design and character geometry and uh, animation fluidity. Um, I mean, just looking at the, the sort of production art still that they have for the the campaign here you know it's it's a sort of mishmash of several eras of of disney design styles mm-hmm. there's a susan of like a beauty and the beast era here and a little bit of little mermaid there and then you know some of the edges have a kind of contemporary sort of uh, hercules emperor's new groove slash Princess and the Frog, ish, you know, Hunchback of Notre Dame. I'm just listing films now.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's it's kind of centered around this this kind of second Disney Renaissance, isn't it? That kind of that kind of era, and that's that's where these chaps are from. You know, they're from the uh, these are the guys that worked on Aladdin, Beauty and the Beast, Little Mermaid, etc.
1: Mm. Oh, it hasn't. Fin- Sorry, I, I said before it's it's past. It hasn't. It's just way past the goal. Oh, yeah, it's... it's So right now, there's well over two weeks. I guess when the podcast goes out, there'll be like a week left on it. Oh,
0: yeah, certainly. And if people um, should take a look at it, and if they fancy donating, then, you know, go right ahead. It's a great... It looks like a great set of films. But it's a, it's a great set of films that could really have done with playing on the fact that this is a film with a a, a strong female uh, protagonist by the looks of things. There's very little been released about the story. Hmm. Uh, there doesn't appear to be a prince in it. So it, it kind of sidesteps quite a few tropes. It's set in a unique world, the whole steampunk thing. It's It's got an abundance of fantastic selling points. But the fact that they've gone by the, or not they themselves, but the, uh, the media have gone through this kind of, hey, look, 2D animation, this rare... As if it's like some kind of rare butterfly that they've found that they thought was extinct, and here it is. But, yeah, it's...
1: So, so 2D animation is a beautiful but dying art form that the animation studios have all but abandoned. But if we can find this film with your help, we'll be able to show investors that people really do want to see a feature-length animated steampunk film, etc. I mean, you know, I maybe because a lot of these people, from what I gather from this sort of roster here their experience spans a lot of classic major animated features. And perhaps from their perspective, within the major studios, uh, they're seeing a much more negative attitude toward 2D animation that, say, you or I would, because we look at so many other forms of 2D animation outside of the world of mainstream cinema. Mm -hmm. And I expect that what they're saying here is that they're trying to communicate to people who are quite close-minded that 2D animation does have relevance and it does have an audience. Yes. Uh, and the close-minded people are the people who have the major funding beyond what, say, a, a Bill Plimpton or a Joanna Quinn or a short filmmakers or, you know, British studios, a TV show production houses, etc., etc., would require. I think that perhaps it's not so much the people who are behind this campaign as far as the press that sort of reported on it yes i mean we deal with this a little bit with squiggly finding sort of bylines and buzzwords and phrases and stuff to kind of increase visibility i think people who because we're sort of we're less kind of cutthroat i would say as far as needing to get scoops and needing to get goss and that kind of thing we're more about things that we're genuinely enthusiastic about that's not as predominant a concern Whereas I think a lot of, say, sort of news outlets and things like that, they need to find something that will hook people. And so maybe it, boiling it all down to a, a phrase like, you know, saving 2D animation, it simplifies things tremendously. But at the same time, it sort of makes it more accessible to people who are just sort of clicking through.
0: Sure. I mean, you can see, I, I can absolutely see where they've, where they've gone with it. And, it, you know, it has worked. <laughs> hmm. You know, congratulations. I mean, it must be an absolute, uh, the dream job for these guys that are signed up for it. They're able to create more perks, and this film's already got its fan base ready and raring to see these films. You know that's correct, but seriously, I mean, it wouldn't hurt to say that traditional American two D feature animation is a dying art form rather than two D animation.
1: I think that in a lot of respects, we see a lot less of the the classical, hugely elaborate two D animation that you would get in the sort of Disney Golden Age and stuff that's only really sort of kept properly alive by Disney veterans and people like Richard Williams and so on and so forth. I think you don't get that nearly as much because there just isn't as much call for it. Mm -hmm. And economically speaking, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You don't need a show like Rick and Morty or BoJack Horseman to look like, I mean, not even like a Disney feature, but like, you know, DuckTales or one of the stripped down show versions. There was a lot of full animation in those. It wasn't obviously nearly as good as the films, but I imagine it was quite costly. Mm-hmm. That's just not sort of required, I think, by audiences so much nowadays. And so, yeah, for the people who hold the money, you can see why they'd sort of err on the side of keep it cheap, keep it basic, rely on the writing, that kind of thing.
0: Certainly, yeah. That's that's even uh, elapsed onto short films uh, that we that we love. Uh, look at Will and Ainsley's stuff. Will Anderson, Ainsley Henderson, the... Malky shorts, you know, or, or Scroogin yeah. and a Greg. How much... I mean, that's, <laughs> that's not like The Lion King, animation-wise, is it? But the kind of... The comedy is is portrayed in such a sort of fantastic way. You know, you don't necessarily need full animation for that kind of thing.
1: You no, know, I saw a repeat of the other day was... Uh, I imagine it did very well, was that show they did of Ricky Gervais' podcasts with just really basic Flash animation over the top of it.
0: The Ricky Gervais show.
1: I mean, it's it's as basic as can be, but it worked as a show because that was so much... I mean, it worked as a show without visuals, you know. So the visuals are kind of redundant in a way, but it was a way of repurposing the audio and, and putting it on TV. And that's all that you kind of need is just that sort of very asset dependent, a lot of the same kind of poses and facial expressions. And very occasionally when Carl, the producer, goes on his flights of fancy, then they introduce a new setting or a new background, but then it goes back to the, the podcast environment again. And, you know, that's sort of tolerated by audiences. There's enough sort of changing up of the shots and the, the lip sync and the facial expressions and stuff like that. that people are kind of fine with it. It's enough. And it's a, it's not ideal, but you get to produce a lot more content that way. There was a film made kind of in, in that sort of style, which I, uh, I've, wouldn't mind having a little look at, but I haven't been that bowled over by it from like stills and stuff. It's a film, um, you know, the filmmaker Kevin Smith. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a Jay and Silent Bob cartoon film. Yeah. And it's just done by this guy who I think does like webtoons for them. And it looks like a webtoon, but it's like an hour long or an hour and a half long about, you know, Jay and Silent Bob one one of their adventures.
0: So is it like Clerks the Unmade series, style wise, or?
1: No, well, that I, I was quite fond of the Clerk's series style. I mean it's, it's sort of dated now, but like at the time it was I mean, it wasn't like crazy, elaborate full animation, but it was more animated certainly than, than this. Mm-hmm. It seemed like one guy and probably like a Keystone crew probably put this this film together, and that in and of itself is is commendable. It's just like, does that kind of style maintain itself for a feature length? I don't know. I mean, I haven't seen it yet. I, it did. They did play it in Bristol, but I wasn't. I don't think I was in town the day that they came with it. But uh, if anyone out there has seen it, maybe they could share their thoughts about it.
0: What was the name of the film?
1: Uh, I think it was just called Jay and Silent Bob's Cartoon Movie. Oh, okay. Like it was fairly cartoon adventure, something like that. Yeah. It, well, I mean, I don't think they kind of had the same pulling power as they might have done, you know, back in the sort of Generation X years, the days of of Clerks and or as people who don't know how to read, pronounce it, Clarks. <laughs> but, you know, I think that, that there's still kind of a big cult following for pretty much anything associated with that. Mm-hmm. I think my kind of affection for them kind of began and ended with Dogma. Dogma animated series, that would have been pretty cool. I'm pretty interesting, yeah. Two angels killing people. <laughs> that would have been fun. Yeah. I'm not screen. I don't know if that's the future of 2D feature animation. I think that when you look at the success of something like Cheaton, which I think has been received very well, it's certainly not Disney fluidity. I think that the quality of the drawings is exceptional, but you know it obviously doesn't have that kind of you know full frame rate. But that's never been his his thing. And I think that that's worked to varying degrees with Bill Plimpton's work in the past. I think that it goes much better with with music than it does with dialogue. Um, so I think Idiots and Angels and Cheaton are much better films. Signe Bauman's film is out now doing the rounds. It's getting lots of very good reviews, which I don't want to say is, is surprising. I mean, it sort of is, but not in a mean way. Like I was kind of in a way of like, you don't give reviewers that much credit. Like we were talking about box troll reviewers before, like I was expecting because Signe Bauman is so, you know, direct and so no holds barred that might freak some stuffed shirts out of it. But the response to her film, which again, like Bill Plympton's, is very limited. It's also very you know, style restricted and it's very much her personality in film form, very much at odds with what conventional animated features are seen to be. So given that it's had a positive critical response so far, that's kind of a good sign. Sure. But maybe they regard a film like that as a kind of oddity or something completely separate from what
0: the Disneys of the world have put out in the past. I think people have to sort of let loose a little bit and, and say, well, this is, it's animated, that's all I know about it. Not, oh, it's animated with nothing like Disney. Oof. In my own opinion, you shouldn't view a film with with an expectation to to, to have the kind of Disney experience. Mm-hmm. But I think Cheating and, uh, I know, uh, Sydney's film, they were both kickstarted as well. Yeah. Yeah, so Cheating was. I think the way that kind of films are being made and short films like color blue and you know more long form stuff the whole the whole thing is changing the whole funding landscape the whole the way we get content delivered to us it's all changing it's all in a kind of weird sort of metamorphosis at the moment how it's all changing from oh you need to go to the cinemas to see this oh you need to go to festivals to see that you know the advent of kickstart the advent of indiegogo and crowdfunding and patreon and and all these other kind of uh, methods of of funding films is, is changing everything. The way that we view films as well on uh, on Netflix and, you know, online TV and stuff. Uh, you, you've you recently got into BoJack Horseman, which is a Netflix original. The You know, it's a, a whole animated series has just been just plonked on there for anyone to view whenever they want. There's no schedule. You don't have to wait until, you know, every Wednesday at nine o'clock. It's there for, for the taking. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, isn't it? So, you know, you can see where, why the Hullabaloo team have put that... To the animation of this ilk is a dying art form because maybe there's no platform for it.
1: We shall see. There's no uh, suspense as far as whether or not they'll make their money. That's a done deal. <laughs>
0: yes. uh, it's already like 400%. Absolutely. So
1: it's either way, which, you know, it's we'll, we'll see how it turns out. And here's hoping it's going to be one of those ones that things go relatively smoothly and doesn't sort of fall apart at the seams and no one freaks out and burns all the materials or.
0: Though these guys seem on it, I'm, I'm looking forward to. Uh, to seeing what happens with the film and I hope, it, I hope it goes really well for them you know I just hope they wouldn't have said that 2D's dead <laughs> if anyone thinks 2D animation's dead get yourself around to a film festival that's all I can say
1: indeed so regular listeners of the squiggly animation podcast will probably be familiar with Laura Beth who is our features writer and she's interviewed uh, quite a few people who we featured on the podcast of late people like Ainsley Henderson Mark Rolls, co-director of Co-Willie uh, Eamon O'Neill and recently, the team behind Disney's Feast, which was in the last episode of the Squiggly podcast, and I'm talking with Laura Beth now, who is uh, currently about to embark on a project with Animation Toolkit, which I'm sure some people out there are familiar with what Animation Toolkit does. There are suppliers of animation, uh, armatures, rigs, and all the kinds of stuff that you need to sort of get going as a stop-motion animator. Laura, how are you doing?
5: I'm fine, thank you. How are you?
1: I'm wonderful as always, my dear. <laughs> so what is it that you're doing at the moment with Animation Toolkit? There, as from what I gather, because we've been sort of peripherally involved in this, and uh, we have a bit of an uh, uh, association with Wes Wood, who is the head of Animation Toolkit. I believe he's, he's getting a film together.
5: So um, Wes Wood has been working in the stop motion industry for about 15 years now. Um, he's a producer up at CITV in Manchester and he used to work at Cosgrove Hall back when it was a stop-motion studio but he's basically decided that now would be the perfect time for him to start his own short film it's going to be called Pooch Proposal and it's based on his loosely based on his own life of getting engaged to his now wife and how all the different things can go wrong when you're trying to propose to your girlfriend things like choosing the ring and choosing where to do it and all the other problems that you stop you from doing what you actually want to do there's uh, two main characters steven and his girlfriend jane and then jane's dog who um doesn't want the proposal to go ahead, so he keeps trying to stop Stephen in a bunch of different ways to stop him from proposing. It's a really slapstick-orientated stop-motion film. Big on the sort of physical comedy side. Yeah, it's kind of like a going back to everything that Wes has learnt, um, being involved in children's TV and early Cosgrove Hall kind of thing, so Wind and the Willows, and very traditional stop-motion kind of acting and performance. Mm-hmm.
1: So essentially it's making use of the tools that uh, he has sort of at his disposal as part of Animation Toolkit, essentially, and sort of putting them to, to use in a film as a way to, I guess, demonstrate to filmmakers potentially what you can do with this stuff.
5: We have a, a lot of different armatures and stuff, and he he's made these armatures for about seven years now, in various operations and it's it's recently moved to like new premises in Manchester just outside of Media City so it has like an actual office and staffing and we are now supplying armatures for students and professionals all around the world but this is to really showcase what we can do and it's an opportunity that Wes has always wanted, so it's a lovely little project, and you know it's going to be great to get involved. But of course, we're running this Kickstarter campaign. The Kickstarter is going to raise the funds for all the production side of things, so hiring in animators. Uh, we recently found out we've got Tim Allen on board, who obviously worked on Corpse Bride and. Frank and Weenie, and really big projects like that. He's, you know, he's well known and respected in stop motion, so he's great and he'll be working on the thing. Basically, the Kickstarter will raise the money to pay the animators and the model makers. So the sculpts have been done and we've already paid for that through Animation Toolkit, but we just need extra to help with the casting and just the raw materials because obviously we have all of that in Animation Toolkit because we provide that service anyway but we just need to sort of absorb that cost somehow so it will pay for animators set designers costume makers prop makers wes himself isn't getting paid at all for it he's he's taking this on as a personal project so he'll direct and produce the film with no cost he just wants to make the film happen but obviously you can't expect everyone to do that good animators time costs money well, it
1: seems to me that the, sort of the, it's the type of Kickstarter campaign that has the best sort of spirit behind it in that it's not asking for funds to sort of accommodate one's lifestyle for the duration of a project mm-hmm. that they could just sort of make in their own time it's really more this sort of case of, you know, valuing the people who are going to be on board and, and you know, compensating them appropriately. And that's obviously the better way to sort of go about it, sort of attitude-wise. The sort of reality of, of production isn't all about just sort of getting together and doing this stuff for free, you know, because yeah. these people are very talented. Like you say, Tim Allen has a, a hugely impressive track record and uh, the people involved at the post-production house have had a look at some of the stuff they've been involved with. And, uh, oh, yeah,
3: they've like been a lot.
1: The reason I think that we're sort of particularly interested in, in this project is because at Squiggly we've obviously looked at a lot of Kickstarter campaigns and we've helped to sort of promote them. Uh, Sydney Bauman's uh, campaign, uh, which was successful and she's finished her film. It's now doing very well. Ditto uh, Bill Plimpton, who raised Kickstarter funds for... Uh, I believe the sort of cleanup and colouring of his film. It's also doing very well. Mm-hmm. Daniel Greaves, which, uh, which his film's doing the rounds, just played at Encounters last week. And you know, it's 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 nice to see these things be successful and pan out. And then, of course, not only the campaign being successful, but the filmmakers following through and uh, and actually delivering something. Maybe one or two of the the campaigns that we've promoted or, or been sort of uh, uh, aware of in the past. Have been successful, but the projects have yet to manifest themselves. That's always a sort of risk when you deal with Kickstarter. But uh, by and large, for the most part, I think it is quite, you know, indicative of a new way of things, audience funded content and entertainment. And I think in the case of Pooch Proposal, this is one of the sort of earliest opportunities I think we've had as Squiggly to actually have a look in at the process mm. of crowdfunding because of your involvement with Squiggly and now your sort of involvement with this. We've been down to Animation Toolkit. We we all know Wes. Actually, if you are, are interested in learning more about Wes and his work at CITV, one of the episodes of our YouTube series Lightbox features a, a segment on Compost Corner, which uh, is quite interesting. I think it's a great example that show, which if you haven't seen it, it's a CITV show. It's uh, about uh, snails in a garden and various insects and uh, slugs and things all kind of palling around and very effective economic use of stop-motion puppetry with what I imagine is a fairly sort of small budget for this type for compared to sort of like more elaborate stop-motion productions. And when he, he talks about the ways they kind of go around the cost limitations and things like that, I find that quite interesting. Even though that show isn't necessarily one I would have come across, it's quite interesting to hear about the process and how they kind of think things creatively to come up with the character designs, etc.
5: Yeah, well, uh. that that show actually got Wes his BAFTA nomination last year. Mm. And anything to do with, like, armature building, obviously, the company helps. But Wes started out being an armature builder at Cosgrove Hall and McKinnon Saunders. So, stop motion generally is all about economics and finding ways around things and clever uses of materials. And generally, that's the thing, even as a writer for Squiggly, I've always found interesting is going into... The ways in which materials that you wouldn't have thought would be used in stop motion are and how they're being used and that's part of the wonder and fascination that is stop motion mm. is that everything physically exists but if it's done well you forget that and then afterwards you're like i wonder how they did that i wonder how they made them run i wonder how they made them cry or bleed or whatever yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's an interesting process to be in and the main aim with it all of this is to make sure it looks as professional and quality as possible, I guess.
1: Mm-hmm. Going back to the sort of earlier conversation I had with Steve and the podcast about the sort of nature of crowdfunding and the, the risks involved. Now, this campaign is about to launch at the time of recording. It's re- launching tomorrow. we will have just launched when the podcast goes out. So I guess from this perspective, it's right at the beginning mm-hmm. and it could go either way. Obviously, you know, you guys have hopes for it raising the the funds for you to get started right away and uh, just head on into production. But I think what's kind of opened my eyes a little bit about sort of being involved peripherally in the the setup of the Kickstarter campaign is it is a lot more work than just putting together a page with a pitch on it, you know. And um, maybe you could chat a little bit about how that's been for you and um, what the sort of surprises have been along the way or what was unexpected about it. Or the challenges, I suppose.
5: It's kind of hard to say at the moment. We haven't quite started yet, so I'm sure I'll learn a lot more once it's started. It's going to be a 30-day, which is the average amount for a Kickstarter. I've been brought on for the project because of my knowledge of Kickstarter, because I have I actually covered a lot of the Kickstarters that we do through Squiggly because it's just a personal interest of mine. Mm-hmm. That's why I was brought on. And it's, it's amazing when you have the knowledge of something to then explain that to someone that doesn't and they're just their sheer wonder of like, really? You have to do all that? And it, it, there it, there's a lot of work involved in the pre-production of a Kickstarter like there is a, in production of any film. And it's a whole other world. I mean, I was helped... Greatly, I've been in contact with a lot of people that have run their own and talked about it. Bauman gave me some of her time, as did um, Emma Birch, who run both Daniel Greaves' Kickstarter and the Simon Katz Indiegogo recently, mm. and they were both successful. But anyone I've talked to has always said it's, they're always incredibly hard, and you're always really surprised because you think with the names that are attached that, you know, that in itself would sell it. But the animation community is a lovely one. But in the grand scheme of things, it's still very small. Mm. Uh, So you really have to outreach to people you wouldn't even think about um, at the beginning. And every day is a learning experience. I've been working on this since June on and off and then very constantly for the last month, Mm. every day, nine till five, just getting together getting suppliers to give me quotes on rewards and because it's 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 an accountant's job and it's a producer's job you have to go into the funding side of it you have to figure out how much things will cost you to then provide the people because the last thing you want to do is get all the way through it get all the funding make all these contacts and be involved with all these lovely backers that have helped you with your film and then upset them by not getting the rewards to them because you've had a problem yeah which we know has happened a lot And Kickstarter the other day actually changed their terms of agreement to stop that.
1: I think there have been some straws breaking the camel's back in that regard. I think one recent example, one poor bugger had some kind of complete emotional breakdown and was getting complaints that the rewards weren't being sent out quick enough. So he burned all the unsent rewards, filmed it, and then said, fine, no one gets anything. With this really long kind of, like, uh, I don't know if you'd, what you'd call it, manifesto essay about the nature of consumerism and how... It was sort of like he was making a statement, and a lot of people were surprisingly kind of on board with it. In a kind of like, yes, I support his artistic right to burn, you know, all these rewards. But really, if you read this essay, it comes off a bit like Harding and Cuckoo's Nest who was the very sort of eloquent patient in the asylum who, for the first few sentences, seems like he's quite smart, and then you just realize, this guy is just babbling. I think what that sort of demonstrates is that, you know, there are people behind these campaigns. They are fallible, and they are susceptible to emotional weakness and limitations and and the like. And I think that when you have a strong team and strong heads that have come together and are sort of all working toward a greater cause. I think that it's sort of more indicative of success down the line. Yeah. And, you know, also having like, you know, a backup plan, should things not go exactly to plan initially. Obviously the huge part of the, the success of a campaign is going to be fundamentally the strength of the idea with the film. Now I've had a look at, you know, this film's sort of early development. And I think that there's a lot in there for people who are enthusiastic about stop motion for two main reasons. One, the sort of quality of the work that I imagine will be displayed, knowing the track record of the, the talented people involved. Mm-hmm. You just know that, you know, if they sort of come together, it's going to be something really quite visually fun and exciting. As from what I gather, it's not really dialogue.
5: No, there's no real dialogue in the film. It'll be foley, so it'll be like mm. dog barks, sighs and grunts from the characters. It's a proper um,
1: old-school physical slapstick.
5: Yeah, it's yeah. kind of everything you love about stop-motion, but just done very cleanly and very well. Mm. Or at least that's our hope. It's going to be a fun project to be involved with, and that's the other thing about Kickstarter. Is it's the opportunity to be involved with a real production. You know, you're we have... very low tier actually for having your names in the credits which is great i mean you you go to festivals uh, we were in encounters earlier this week as well promoting the film and two films back to back were kickstarter funded and you just saw the reams of people involved you are a film funder you might have only pledged 10 pounds but you know you're still involved in making a film you get something back from it but you're helping an industry and we know that a lot of our funding and a lot of the people that are going to be listening to this podcast are going to be people involved in the animation industry. Yeah. So it's a, it's an exciting opportunity for you to get involved in that way. Obviously, the higher up you go in the um, backing side of things, you get greater things. I mean, we're lucky because of our involvement with Animation Toolkit with this film, it all being part and parcel. Some of the rewards we're giving away are actually armatures so that you can make your own film. And this is, as well as being like... A project for Wes that he wants to do you know he hopes it would inspire other people to do the same hmm. very much in that mentality of there's no reason why everyone well most people can't do this kind of film it's just about you know using the context using the people and the friends you know to do something you really want to do
1: so I got the kickstarter campaign punched up in front of me this is the sort of pre-launch version of the page, which I assume is pretty much how it's going to be yeah, when people be are listening a to this. Yeah, little
5: bits in yeah. now that we've got updates.
1: And I think if you go onto this, you really do see that a lot of work has gone into it. There's some uh, wonderful early storyboard work from a guy called Vin James, who was, uh, again, again, another sort of veteran of, of TV yeah, animation. Yeah, he also
5: and- started at Cosgrove Hall. He's fantastic, and he's worked on everything, like literally everything. And he's constantly in demand. I mean, I think he was working on like five projects when I went to go see him about Pooch Proposal. Mm. And he likes it that way. He likes being busy. So it was really nice. But he's got a very clean and easy to read style. So you really, the storyboards we have up on the campaign we'll be putting up more as the time goes on and we'll put the animatic up as well. You really get a sense of what the film's going to be because it pretty much is it down to a T. We won't give away the ending, of course, but you can see where it's going to go, and when you see the puppets as well, you'll see how good it will be.
1: And yeah, even just sort of looking at pre-production stills and behind-the-scenes goings-on of you know what sort of goes into the stop-motion fabrication and all of that and the studio setup they have, and and the rewards themselves. You know, I think that um, anyone who's sort of been on the fence about maybe you know going in on one of these armature kits that uh, Animation Toolkit do. I mean, this is sort of an opportunity. One of the sort of rewards, which I'm personally quite tempted by, are these armature kits, which have been specially tailored to this film. Yeah. Um, so if you, you could get the standard one at any time from the company, but if you buy an armature kit as part of supporting the Kickstarter as a, one of the reward incentives, then you get a sort of special limited edition one. I think that's a nice little incentive. They have these lovely little sort of... Uh, the exclusive packaging
5: uh, you do also get like everything behind it as well um, I mean I would always advise that everyone reads everything properly as I would on any Kickstarter because you never know what is involved but most of our pledges up to a certain level involve whatever you get at that pledge, and then everything below, which I think is quite standard normally within Kickstarters, but y- you do occasionally get ones which are just standalone, and we do have a few that are just standalone awards. But, you know, it has all been worked out to give you, like, the best quality for your money, and mm. it should work out.
1: Yeah, well, they look great. I mean, the um, I had a little play with the armatures. We've done stuff on the Animation Toolkit uh, armatures before. I had my sort of first proper play with them uh, when I was up there recently and uh, they're very easy to use. The high-end ones are all easy to sort of craft your own puppet around and there's a slightly uh, uh, less intricate one which is more of a sort of self-assembly uh, wire-based kit.
5: They're both self-assembly. You do have to build both yourself but they're reasonably easy yeah. to put together. They come with full instructions. We're, we're going to have a video up to show you how... There is already a video on the Animation Toolkit page for... Um, showing you how to assemble it. There is also the option to have a reward which either Wes or Daniel who's um, the head at armature builder at the company who will sit down with you over Skype and go through how to do it. Maybe if you're just starting out in stop motion. The wire armature of course is super simple and the ball joint one just gives you that more professional and more dynamic movement. Like you can get a lot more natural flow with that and it's really thinking about what it is that you want to do with it and both have the ability to be both humanoid and uh, animal. So it's just a case of jointing it in a slightly different way. And we're going to be using exactly the same armatures in the film. So you'll be able to see what is fully capable.
1: So as well as all this, there are all sorts of other rewards you can get if you're not actually into the stop-motion side of things yourself. There are the sort of standard kind of um, tokens of involvement, souvenir-type things uh, Twitter mentions. You can get a copy of the film. There are shirts, postcards, and uh, all that kind of good stuff, you know. You can have a full look at uh, all the rewards on the Kickstarter campaign page. Look up Pooch Proposal at uh, kickstarter.com, and you can follow them on Twitter at Pooch Proposal, and uh, they have a Facebook page as well at facebook.com forward slash Pooch Proposal, and you can find out more about Animation Toolkit itself at animationtoolkit.co.uk and facebook.com forward slash Toolkit. Laura Beth, thank you so much for chatting with me and enlightening me as to the, uh, the, the crowdfunding process, and we'll be keeping an eye on this one, and hopefully it'll, uh, it'll pan out and uh, we'll be seeing Pooch Proposal sometime soon.
5: Yeah. Uh, thank you very much.
1: Our final guest on this episode of The Squiggly Podcast is Yanni Goodman, who's a gentleman I've been wanting to talk to for nearly a year now, uh, since I saw the film The Congress, I think back in November... Uh, I was at Montreal for Les Sommets de Cinéma d'Animation. The film was the subject of much discussion, and, and it's not the easiest watch in the world. It's somewhat challenging in some respects, in that it's not a film you can just sort of put on and have it wash over you. To sort of get the most out of it, you really have to sort of sit up and pay attention. I did get a sort of limited theatrical run in the UK last month. I didn't go see it then, because I knew that it was playing at Encounters with Yoni presenting, and... Uh, I have to say that as part of the overall encounters experience, it really fits in rather well in terms of its visual dynamism and moments of sincere ingenuity. It really does kind of capture the spirit of festivals and really what we at Squiggly are all about. Telling stories that are outside of the mainstream and outside of the norm in a way that can only be done with animation. The Congress was directed by Ari Folman. Uh, who also directed Waltz with Bashir, and Johnny Goodman was the animation director on both those films and uh, several in between. It was a real privilege to get to talk to him and find out about the process, and I hope you'll find it interesting, too, and I think that, obviously, Waltz with Bashir received quite a great deal of critical acclaim. I do feel that the Congress has kind of slipped under the radar a bit. And while I do have sort of some ambivalence toward the film as to whether it sort of works as a whole... I have given it quite a lot of thought since I first saw it nearly a year ago, and uh, I think when a film has that kind of effect, that does say something about it. So here's Yanni Goodman, a special guest and jury member of this year's Encounters Festival. I think a lot of people will be familiar with what's with Bashir. As far as your role on that film went, were you very, very involved in developing that style?
6: Yes, uh-huh. yes, definitely. The, the thing with Bashir, it was a very low-budget production. uh uh-huh. And it was really, like, the, the style was the, one of the solutions. I mean, we had, it, it was, a, the, the budget was, of course, a sort of a handicap, a, a handicap, and we used it to our advantage, and we tried to find, because I imagine in a place with. More tradition of animation like the UK or or, or the States, they would say you can't do it. (laughs) We didn't really have anyone to ask, How do you do this? How do you do that? We had to invent things as we went along. So, uh, in a sense, we were also free to to explore new things. And uh, it was really a solution to a problem. The problem being, How do you do this movie with this amount of money? Uh, with a crew that doesn't really have experience with doing uh, feature-length animation, mm-hmm. it was actually the first. It was the first animated feature in Israel since 1964. Uh-huh. So, uh, and and the style grew from it. Yeah. And, and I developed the cutout style, and of course with uh, David Kolomsky's artwork. So it was really inventing the style and the style made it, the, the fact that it was like, a, it made it unique I think. Yeah definitely. definitely. So
1: can you describe a bit your sort of role as, was it the animation director or art yes. director? On the animation film? director. And um, what that sort of entailed as far as, whether there people working underneath you in a sense? Or?
6: Well, Ari, Ari Foreman is the director and he's the creative mind behind the whole process and he's of course he's involved in everything, but he's not an animator, so that's uh, the, um, the Bridget Foreman film game, as he calls it, it's, uh, it's made out of uh, Ari on top of everything, David Polonsky on the artwork and me on the animation, so I handle all things moving really, uh, the animation cruise, Etc. and we decide things, you know, together. It's yep. like a, a collaborative effort with Ari of course on top, but one of the things with working with Ari is that he's very open to suggestions and he lets you have your space. So each of us has a say in the process and Ali being the you know, he's the cinema part of the equation. And he'd worked with Ari before. What's on? Yes. The, was the documentary. Yes, it was a documentary series called oh. "The Material That Love Is Made Of." Mm-hmm. And it was actually a live-action series, and he was obsessed with opening each each chapter with a short animated bit. He's he'd gone and interviewed scientists about oh. love, and every one of them was like, "No, love is nothing. It's chemicals. It's a chemical reaction." And our job was to ridicule it, really. So we were just sort of dubbing what they were saying with animation. Okay. And it was a very, everyone told him, don't do it, you can't do it, it's impossible no, to do it. But he was really obsessed about it. And uh, this was our very first collaboration. It was so much fun to work. Besides, the, the, the stuff itself was great, you know, it was great fun because it was bits and pieces and lots of jokes. And lots of violence and lots of blood, so <laughs> and by by the end of it he came to us and he said, Listen, I have this idea about my experience in the Lebanon and now I know how to do it. So that was Watson Bashir. Awesome.
1: That then I guess essentially had you did you do anything between WhatsApp Bashir and the Congress?
6: Yes, yes. I do a lot of freelance work between the big projects. Was uh-huh. the, each of the features take around. From my end, the whole feature takes around four years. From my end, it's about two and two two and a half years. So I have I have a gap usually of at least a year and a half to two years between features. And I do a lot of uh, freelance work, mostly short films or films for NGOs, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I did see like some things of.
1: Um, One was, a, I believe it was called Blow Zone. Yes, and, yes, um, about the Gaza blockade. Yeah, and the sort yes. of human rights issues and uh, the circumstances behind a film like that. Is it something that you're quite sort of passionate about, the sort of socio-political issues?
6: And, oh yes, yeah. very much. I, it was actually after Bashir. It, it's interesting because people watch. And offer me this project, And I had a very interesting and, and uh, strange to say, uh, fulfilling mm. um, a, a, job, a set of works for UNRWA as well. Mm. It's the UN branch dealing with the uh, Palestinian refugees in the Middle East. So I did a few movies for them and for the Israeli human rights organization. So it became like the thing I was doing. Uh-huh. And it was one job was bringing the other. And and it's actually it was a, a great privilege because I had a chance to do something, yeah. you know, for my limited resources. And the Gaza, the Gaza movie came uh, very close to, the, um, to that, there was an operation in Gaza at the time, which mm. really pissed me off. Right. And and the whole blockade, the whole approach of the government of the Israeli government to the blockade in Gaza, to the people in Gaza, uh, I'm really against. So it was uh, in a sense it was my chance to protest and say something. As
1: an as a medium, as a filmmaking medium. Do you feel animation has certain advantages for making that kind of statement via film over, say, live
6: action? I think so. I think, in general, there's something, and we use that to work in the and, and I try to use it in other films, so there's a point where People don't like to be knocked over the head with a message. Mm-hmm. People and, and Live action tends to do that, you know, you see someone, you see something, you see some atrocity. Mm-hmm. and If you take quotes with Bashir, for instance, the, the images we are showing are very hard mm-hmm. if you were to see them in live action. And a lot of people, when they're being faced with with these hard visuals, they tend to block it. Uh-huh. And they say, I don't want to hear it, it didn't happen, it doesn't exist. And animation is sort of a backdoor. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we try, I try to use it a lot, we did that a lot with Shield, just relaying the message yeah. through animation where people can say, Okay, this is grown, so I can take it, mine can take it. Mm-hmm. And then later, you know, in the end, we just make them face. The, the actual footage
1: Right. so so uh, moving on to the congress which um, is played here at Encounters and um, I caught it uh, in December I think or November at a festival in Montreal mm-hmm. and I was quite enthusiastic to watch it a second time <laughs> yeah. um, so I'm glad I got a chance to yesterday um, it really swells around in your head you know there's a lot to it and there's it a, a lot to handle yeah,
6: in <laughs> the congress yeah.
1: Essentially, I guess, was was your sort of decision, was your input, I guess, sort of similar to that of Bashir, um, it's
6: artistically? Interesting. Or? It's interesting, because we started out with the Congress, we did uh, developments, because we always do a development stage uh, before the feature, uh-huh. a few months before the feature. One of the reasons is you do like a proof of concept, you do like a few minutes of examples and you show it to... Uh, funds and uh, and people who give you money for the project and and you say this is what I'm going to do present it with the script and then people give you money to do the whole feature another is important for us because we want to enter working on the feature knowing what we're going to do Mm -hmm. and this the process with Bashir was fairly easy because the development was very close to what we had in the feature itself. Mm-hmm. We we improved, you know, from the development stage to the actual feature in Bashir we improved our technique and we knew better what to do. But in the Congress we tried to do something um, we had in our mind we wanted to do something very different from Bashir mm-hmm. both stylistically and story storytelling from a storytelling point of view. But we ended up doing something that was too close and too familiar to the show, right. and uh, the development itself it was supposed to be like a hybrid between cutout and 2D animation, frame by frame. And when we were finished with it, we sort of looked at it and said, "This is like more of the same, and we've had enough of that." There was a point of breakthrough when we was started watching the early cartoons of the Flashers. Mm. Uh, the very early, because we went back to the source, we started looking back at very, very old stuff. Mm-hmm. Winslow McKay, uh, the Fleischer Brothers, the early Disney's, all these types of movies. And movies. something that appeared to us very much about the Fleischer's approach to animation. The way, there was something very dark mm-hmm. and very interesting about, and, and very free. Mm. You know, there's something without constraints, and also they did amazing stuff on on those early cartoons, the Popeyes, the very early Popeyes, because Popeyes is a character that moved hands a lot from then, but they did the original ones, which was superb animation, and the Betty Boop, and... um, The Cap Callaway cartoons which were fantastic Mm. and the Superman cartoons really opened our eyes because it was a combination, this is sort of what we were looking for, Uh, the combination between very realistic characters and very cartoony characters and they coexisted in that style so we we studied it a lot, continued to the text series, to all just went right from the beginning and try to build ourselves up mm. from that approach and, and uh, the style, uh, the style of the animation also dictated in a sense the, the style of the design, the, the art deco, the 1920s, the uh, is going into a hotel and the hotel is a big boat so the mm. interior design is also very 1920s, 1930s, art deco and so we just built from that uh-huh. and it was an it was an interesting as, a, as an animator it was an interesting process because i had to relearn a lot of the history of yeah. the animation so it was well, it's, that's always good if you can do that if you can learn while working yeah. yes.
1: when it came to the sort of more realistic characters like who had the live-action counterparts was there sort of was there ever sort of reference footage taken of like say Robin Wright or um,
6: or was it all kind of just animated to a voice track? Well um, all of the movie Ali did uh, does all of the when he does the soundstage, the the recording of the sounds, it's not like you sometimes you see in an animation feature you see like people in sound the actors in sound booths with ear, uh-huh. with the earphones and Ali doesn't work like that. What he does is he Puts the actors in some stage, and they act it out. So, if Orbin and uh, John Ham were sitting in a, in a restaurant eating, you'd have a table, you'd have a tablecloth, and you'd have uh, all the kitchenware and glasses and wine glasses, etc. So, and and cameras from a few angles. So when they acted. He actually uh, made them act as if they were playing in front of the Mm. camera, and it's good for a few reasons. First of all, I think the actors are more in the scene. It's not they don't imagine they're sitting next to a table; they are sitting next to a table. Uh, So we get the most out of them. Another reason is that it's very good reference, and in the Congress we needed in the animation part, the animation part in the Congress comes 15 minutes after we see Robin Wright for in live action, so we had to make it believable, we had, as an audience you have to believe that this is the same character, so we drew a lot of preference from uh, the acting, we could really get like the fine-tuning of how she blinks, for instance what does she do with her hands when she's sitting down stuff like that and that is very very important reference Yeah, I think probably my, my favourite as
1: in live action and in animation is um, I think the actor's name is Danny Houston. Danny Houston Danny yeah. Houston is amazing and uh, just the villainy of that yeah. character and how, how well that translates to kind of a cartoon supervillain villain um, from being a sort of understated executive yeah. creep um, that was wonderful I mean with when it came to sort of like each individual character performance was it sort of structured like say you hear sort of like Disney features, they would have different like animation directors or sort of subdirectors who would work on a specific character, or was that all essentially no, that's organized? all
6: you know in a perfect world that might have worked. Right. But uh, we had to build, the co-production was insane. Because we had to get money from several countries, we had to invest that money because of the European funding system. We had to invest that money in the country we were getting it from. So we got money from Belgium, we had to spend it there, the animation there. And money from Luxembourg would go to an animation studio in Luxembourg. So. Eventually, uh, I was managing seven studios worldwide. One in Israel, one in Luxembourg, one in Belgium, uh, two in Germany, and a, a cleanup painting in between studio in Poland and a cleanup painting in between studio in the Philippines. And the Polish studio subcontracted work to the Ukraine, to India, to. <laughs> Turkey, eventually we found out. So it was a very, very difficult production in that Uh, sense. So we just divided it as logically as we could Uh, and then everything came back and my studio in Israel sort of managed the workflow and the feedbacks. Danny Houston was amazing, and yeah, he's a, yeah. such a great guy. I met him in Cannes. Meet uh-huh. loved the movie he was really <laughs> enthusiastic about it. So, hmm. is there
1: a uh, is there a particular kind of software that
6: is gravitating toward for this type of production? Yes, or we were for? using uh, Toon Boom. And it was actually a lifesaver in this yeah. production because because of the studio structure, what happened was I was getting shots back. Especially because we had five studios doing line test, mm-hmm. studios in Europe, and two studios doing cleanup in Indie Queens. And I was getting stuff from the cleanup and it's sort of this was my first time in this scope production. And I was sort of <laughs> I, I got shots back and at first I just commented, fix this, do that. And shots would go back after into retails and, and vanish for a month or so. And when they came back I still have had issues with them. Now the thing with Harmony I, I got I started asking for the work files. So I got the entire work file and I will fix it myself, right. eventually. I'm still using it. We're uh, okay. using it in the production now, and it's, uh, it's a great software to work with. And, and very handy. I tell you what, because a lot of the like I, I know, mainly I know TV paint for instance, it's also a very, very good software. Uh-huh. But there's something about Harmony that's great for a, a large team, because, People can work. In, you can send files from one person to the other and fix stuff. And it's just very handy. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned you're working
1: on something at the moment. Are you able to talk a bit about that, or is it kind of?
6: Yes. No. no it's, okay. it's okay. We we're doing we're currently doing the development for a our next feature, say the solar fun fan. Uh-huh. Okay. And, uh, so right now we're finishing. We're finishing that stage of the development right. where we we picked our technique and the style, and we're currently just you know looking at stuff and re-examining stuff. Mm. Oh, excellent! Oh, well, that yeah. sounds interesting. Yeah, it's gonna or be we'll, we'll definitely want to sort of keep an eye out as yeah. that sort of comes. That would take a while. Oh yeah. Now the production will start. I imagine next year. Uh huh. Cool. Cool. Excellent. Well, yeah, Thank you so much for talking. Thank
1: that was Yanni Goodman. To see more of his work, you can visit yannigoodman.co.il. And to find out more about the Congress, visit thecongress-movie. You can also see more Encounters coverage on squiggly.com, and you can see and hear more of the Yanni Goodman interview in our most recent episode of Lightbox, which is also up on Squiggly and, of course, our YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash user forward slash magazine. Have a little browse, because I'm sure you'll find something you like. And we're out of time, unfortunately. That's actually a complete lie. There's no time limit on the podcast. We've run out of stuff to share with you for this episode. But uh, we'll be back soon enough. In the meantime, thank you very much to everyone who helped out in this episode of the podcast. Thanks to Jesse Cleverly, Yanni Goodman, and Travis Knight for their time and their insight. And uh, thank you to Tom Sanders,
0: who interviewed Travis Knight, and of course Laura Beth for helping out and filling in. The Squiggly Podcast is presented by myself, Steve Henderson, and Ben Mitchell. It is produced and edited by Ben Mitchell with music by Wes Allard and Ben Mitchell. You can find out more about today's
1: guests at yonnygoodman.co.il, wildseedstudios.com, animationtoolkit.co.uk, and to find out more about their upcoming short film, Pooch Proposal, you can follow them on Twitter at poochproposal and facebook.com forward slash poochproposal. You can also follow us, of course, if you don't already, at Squiggly on Twitter, and facebook.com forward slash Squiggly Magazine. I'm on Twitter at Ben L. Mitchell. My website is ben-mitchell.co.uk, and you can follow Steve on Twitter at Mr. underscore S underscore Henderson. And for all the latest news, reviews, features, insight, the works, visit squiggly.com. S-K-W-I-G-L-Y, because people still get a little confused about that. Can't say I blame them.